Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next edition of Infection Control Matters. I'm Phil Russo, and today I'm being joined by Dr. Sally Roberts. Sally and I have a similar interest and have also worked uh, together in the past. Sally is the health from the Health Quality and Safety Commission New Zealand and is the Infection Prevention Control Program, uh, the National Clinical Lead. So welcome, Sally. You're a fool. Uh, Sally, the reason why I've, I've got you here today is because uh, recently you played a lead role in the first ever uh, National New Zealand Point Prevalence Survey for Healthcare Association Infections. So that's something that I'm very interested in and, and done similar work in Australia, so I was uh, very keen to have you on and ask you a few questions. I suppose, uh, first of all, we'll just start off by asking how it came to be that, that uh, you wanted to do a point prevalence survey. We, we had done them in New Zealand in individual DHBs, but it was actually last century in the 1990s. And um, we'd be, had been in a keenness to do it since then, but never really been in the position with having a national program that we could do it. And in 2017, my colleague Nikki Gray and I had the opportunity to visit the um, Welsh Healthcare Associated Infection Program in Cardiff. And it was at the time they were doing the um, ECDC uh, point prevalence survey. So we were sort of fascinated by that and followed up by meeting um, some of the team at the ICPIC conference in Geneva in 2019. And that sort of started us thinking that we could do one um, at a national um, level in New Zealand. And from there, we sought funding from the Health Quality and Safety Commission um, and were granted some funds to support the program. I must say that part of it really impresses me because certainly in Australia, we weren't able to get any sort of support from, from government or government agencies uh, uh, to help uh, fund the Point Prevalence Survey in Australia. So was there anything in particular, any particular convincing argument that you used to, to get that funding? Well, we really use the example from ECDC to say that you have to understand the burden of disease in your country, and we didn't have any um, across New Zealand data. We just had um, one or two district health boards, of which there are 20 in New Zealand. So we, um, because the commission really is around quality improvement and reducing um, harm and improving patient safety, we, we felt we should have contemporary data to support where our programs would be focused. Um, and so that was we could sell it to the board of the commission that way. Certainly, congratulations on on doing that. It's certainly it's, it's and it's great to see it. And I think that the commission should be commended for their interest in this area and for, for funding the, the program. It's really important. So tell me, how did it start? Uh, were hospitals uh, mandated to participate in the program or was it a voluntary, put your hands up and join in? Well, once the Health Quality and Safety Commission Board had approved it, then I presented at the national leadership meetings for the district health board. So that was the um, chief executives, the chief financial officers, the chief information officers, the chief medical um, officers and the directors of nursing and um, the commission is some of the the commission's IPC program is partly funded by the district health boards so it was really just a given in a way that this is what was the next program we were moving on to um, and they're all very enthusiastic um, about participating and all 20 DHBs participated in it. 
Fantastic. So tell us about um, your team, how you pulled them together and who they were and, and what sort of training and, and the, uh, the implementation of the survey. Well, we were very lucky in 2019 to connect with you, Phil, and um, the, the um, research that you've done. And so that was a big step forward for us to see, see that it is possible. Um, you know, the thought of manual collection of data and then entering it into databases is um, a bit daunting. And so to to, to meet, and we had we, you know, we had during 2019 a number of teleconferences that were very helpful. Yes. And then your colleagues in um, Singapore and yourselves very kindly shared the Red Caps data collection tool with us. So we took um, the instruction manuals and we looked at ECDC, and we, we actually had looked at another other ways to do it, whether the existing proprietary software we had for IPC in New Zealand would be able to capture it or whether we could, there were other off-the-shelf products, but there weren't really any. So the RedCap became a data collection tool for us. We worked with business intelligence units within each district health board, and these are the units that manage all the data, um, and came up with a core data set that each DHB had to provide when we went to do the point prevalence at that um, DHB. And on the morning of the point prevalence survey, they would upload all of, all this data into the red caps. Actually, they would send it by a secure network to the commission's um, team and they would upload it into the red caps for us. So we would have the list of patients in front of us that we had to do. So sure. that, that side was pretty um, well sorted. So that, that's an important point. It is so. Yeah. The, the assumption, I'm assuming then that the hospitals in New Zealand have very advanced electronic medical records. That, that, oh, that's a wrong assumption. Okay. <laughs> they vary. So some have um, electronic records and um, e-prescribing and uh, good um, diagnostic radiology and laboratory interfaces. Some are entirely manual. So we could get the laboratory information um, online, but we... There were hard copy notes and hard copy drug charts and temperature charts we had to go and find as well. So that very varied up and down the countryside. So all that the patient level data was was uploaded yep. using yep. that. And, and, we, and in New Zealand, we all the moment you're born or you arrive in New Zealand, you get a national health index number, and that stays with you for your entire life. So we can track people all through the country through different hospitals. We can track pharmaceutical prescriptions, all the investigations on that national health index number. That makes it a bit easier. <laughs> so that's used as your medical record number, essentially. Is Me that... Medical record number. Okay. Yeah. Okay, very easy. So, so if I go from one DHB to another, they can track my records from that other DHB based on that number. Very helpful. Makes our data very high quality because even in the private sector, that number is used yep. as well. Yep, yep. Um, okay, so back to the survey. Were you collecting data from every patient in the hospital that, on that particular day? Yes, and we, depending on the size of the hospital, we might have gone for um, one to two days or up to, to four to five days. And we would we divided the bigger hospitals up over a number of days, and we would have an 8 a.m. census, which the business intelligence unit dumped the data on of who was in the hospital on that day. Only adults greater than the age of um, eight, greater than equal to 18 years of age. Okay, and so um, patient data was in there. So your data collectors would come along then and collect data on potential infection. So in some district health boards, I could sit in a room. So so with each 
um, DHB, we had a DHB person so that they could get into their electronic records. I didn't need to go and get passwords. And then we had a trained team. We were very lucky to have three very skilled nurses. Two were infection prevention control nurses with over 20 years experience each. And the other one was a more junior nurse, but she had a lot of intensive care support. So that made, she understood intensive care setting. And then myself or my colleague, Arthur Morris, we would attend um, at the larger DHBs to make up the team and help. And it's always instructive to be part of this process because you can understand the barriers and what makes things easier. At some district health boards, I could sit in a room with the DHB person and have the electronic records, the e-vitals and the e-prescribing all in front of me, and we could just do it then and there. Other areas, we were running around trying to compete to get access to medical notes or find the medication chart that was often separate from the um, recordings chart, just depended. But having a person from the DHB was very helpful because they knew the systems very well. Yes, it was important to have that person you can navigate through. Um, And we found that too in the Australian um, study was, I think there was two two or three hospitals of the 19 that were fully electronic and data collection there was, you know, a fifth of the time or even less than it would have taken had there been all paper records. So um, was there any affirmation of a potential infection? If if a patient was flagged as potentially having an infection, did another person come along and confirm that or was there any conference about that? Um, at the end of every day, we went through every um, person who was thought to be infection or um, had had been reviewed and was not considered. So we would go through the whole lot to, um, and it was either Arthur, myself, and the team were there, and we went one by one. Um, but, and the te- it was very good in the beginning because we started at probably our most complex hospital, which was a bit of a challenge for the nursing team. But um, nothing phased them after uh, working through that um, hospital, and. Uh, it, it meant that I had a good sense of uh, that the data was really good quality. Um, and, and we would, there was a lot of learning around cases that were challenging. Was it, um, you know, when did we count it as infection? Um, what did it mean? And sometimes we'd have to go back to the infectious disease or clinical microbiology colleagues in that DHB to get further understanding of it. Okay. Um, during the data collection process and the, and the hospital representative, was there uh, any transfer of knowledge over to them or any teaching of them how to do the you know how to use the tool in future capacity or so so we were mainly paired with infection prevention control nursing staff or quality um, members and they actually found it really valuable to come around with us um, and discuss cases and more than their normal day-to-day work and at the end of the um, at the start of every day we had a introduction meeting of what we were going to do and at the end of the day they well they were welcomed and joined us with all the case discussion that we had as well which they found very useful and then at the end of each DHB we would do a summary of what we'd found in their DHB for them and uh, we had a sort of a wide invite group for that Um, and and I think that the nurses felt empowered actually at the DHBs we visited because here was a new school and they actually saw that it wasn't difficult um, and that, that it could be done, and to see it being done, we all had Palm Pilots, so to see it being done on Palm Pilots was, not Palm Pilots, um, iPads. iPads. Um, yeah. I'm thinking back to hand hygiene Australia and New Zealand days. Um, so iPads, we've made it very easy. And I, I, you know, I think from that, I'm hoping that we'll get more engagement from them next time. They won't be so, this is going to be hard. It'll be, sure. if you want to be part of this, this is exciting. 
Yeah, it's a good way to engage, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So uh, you've previously told me about some of the challenges that you had to experience during um, during the whole project, not the least being COVID, but there were also some other um, interruptions that you had to deal with. What were they again? Well, we, we were planning to start this in 2020. So, you know, um, so it, it, it was um, we didn't get going until... Uh, February um, 2021, and uh, we started in Auckland, but we went into a lockdown in, um, shortly uh, at the end of the first week. But luckily, we were going to hospitals outside of Auckland, so we were able to keep going. And then Waikato District Health Board had a massive cyber attack, which took out their entire District Health Board information system. But luckily, we'd been to Waikato um, <laughs> two weeks beforehand. And then in the midst of it, there was a nursing strike. Um, and so, but once again, we were we had two DHVs to go by the time of the nursing strike. So we felt we kind of dodged and weaved our way through um, all these sort of events without too much impact on us. We, 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 had, we well. had no influenza though. That was the um, other thing of note. And we have to wonder, wonder whether um, that may have impacted on um, some of the winter respiratory illnesses and, and admissions we would have seen during that time. Sure, sure. Okay, so from from day one of data collection to the end of data collection, how long was that period? We went from the 23rd of February to the 23rd of June, so four months. (laughs) Sure, okay. That's pretty good going for all those hospitals. Yes, the team, I think the travel for the team um, was much more challenging than we thought. Um, Mm. You know, during the COVID as well, the uh, air flight times were reduced and so um, they were often having to travel the day day before and they couldn't get out of, um, out of the small community on time or um, we would be uh, trying to changing flights all the time to get them um, around the country. Yeah, the travel can be a real challenge. With, I with think they found it heavy going and staying in mot- yeah. motels and that every night mm. um, after a while mm. it sounded glamorous but it wasn't. No, it's not at all, is so. it? Okay, so let's let's get on to the results. Um, so, what were some of the major findings of the uh, of the study? Well, we, we were surprised by how many patients we saw. Just under five thousand five hundred patients of across three hundred and thirteen wards, thirty one hospitals, and all twenty DHBs. Um, and our overall prevalence was six point six percent, or the a rate per hundred was seven point seven um, events. So, so um, consistent when we looked at European um, and some of the um, other countries that had done it. You know, we just, it was interesting. We, I had no idea what we were going to expect. So, no, it was um, very valuable data. Yeah. And just as a reminder, so 6.6 prevalence rate and, yes. and Australia reported a, a 9.9 um, prevalence rate. So we were a bit high, but we had a slightly different patient population yeah, yeah, as, yeah. as well, I think. Yeah. We, 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 it's quite hard to compare um, our hospitals with your hospitals. You know, they were, yours were type, is it type A you call them, or um, principal referral hospitals? And That's so correct, they, yeah. were, they were the, the um, really heavy, what I call heavy duty hospitals across Australia, whereas we did every hospital throughout New Zealand. And I know from um, previous experience, um, if you if you go and look at them, there's about four or so that probably are equivalent to your um, 19 that you did, but the rest, some of them, are, some of our hospitals were quite, quite rural and quite small. They had to have more than 50 beds. That was the requirement. 
Sure, sure. Um, and so um, other parts for what were the most common infections well, found? Three quarters were caused by surgical site infections, um, urinary tract infections, of which just under half had they'd had a urinary catheter in the last seven days. You know, 18% were pneumonia and then bloodstream infection and a quarter of our one bloodstream infections related to vas- medical devices, which were predominantly vac- vascular access devices. And I think it's good to, good to be reminded of that. We often, um, as we see one event at a time, we don't actually realise that a quarter of these are potentially preventable. So did any of the, the results surprise you, Sally? Um, I, was, I, was, I must admit I was a little bit surprised by the surgical site infection rates, but you know that, that 5% of all our surgical patients are there because of the infection of a healthcare-associated infection. I, I suppose as, as a um, practicing infectious disease physician also, I don't always see these patients. They're managed by the surgeons, and I tend to just see the very complicated ones. With, with that surgical site infection cohort, did you look at uh, the types of procedures they'd had, and, and is there, are they areas where you would normally have surveillance activities or was there areas that, that slide under the radar? Now, the common in the gastrointestinal surgery area, isn't it? And we have had... Um, since about 2013 in New Zealand, a surgical site infection improvement program for orthopaedic hip and knee arthroplasty procedures and for cardiac surgery. And we've reduced the infection rate in both those procedures as part of this program. And that, that was really focused on process measures. I now realise that we need to ex- expand that further into the other areas um, as well. But it's it's um, been a great program, but it's a challenge with data collection when you have a lot of manual data collection required. And um, we, we would have to see how we could resource that to get it further. Mm. But I, I think medical device-related infections is a big issue that we hadn't really grappled with um, in this yep. country, and that's what we need to look at more closely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, pathogens, any surprises in the no. in common pathogens? <laughs> Staph aureus, Staph aureus, Staph aureus, and um, E. coli, really. So about just over 20% Staph aureus and and 20% E. coli. I suppose uh, Entrococcus species were a bit more common than I would have thought, and I I suspect that's in urinary tract infections, particularly in in surgical patients that have had a cephalosporin as surgical prophylaxis, and their urinary catheter has been in, and that's what they've gone on and got. Yeah, yeah. We had about 14% were what we called a multi-drug resistant organism, and that was something we were really quite focusing on. So um, we, we have a sort of endemic MRSA in our community, particularly in the northern region, and that's where most of them were from. So 13% of the staph aureus were MRSA, and about 28% of all the enterobacteriales were um, resistant to third-generation cephalosporins, more so than carbapenems. We didn't have a single case of BRE. Wow, that's impressive. I that think that's the port enclosures that we, we haven't been able to have people travelling backs and forwards between um, some high burden countries that are quite, quite close to us. Australia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, now that the borders are opening in the next couple of weeks, I think we're going to start seeing far more um, multi-drug resistant importations, okay. probably more so than COVID, I suspect. New Zealand's opening up its borders in June, June or July? June, July, yep. June, July. We've opened, yep. I think we've opened to Australia. New Zealand is in Australia now, haven't we? Yes, yep. that's right. Yep, yep. 
The other thing I noticed in your report was that you listed the hospitals and uh, and their in, their prevalence rates yes. as well, which sort of was a nice surprise because it's you know publicly revealing how hospitals are performing. But I also noticed that you did some um, funnel plots, and there were no particular hospitals identified as outliers. If that's correct, well, I like to think that there are two outliers. One is my hospital. Auckland District um, Health Board and and um, and then and then one other outlier. So two are over the, over the ninety five percent confidence interval. But um, I thought it was important to do that. Um, but we've always been very transparent at the commission. By public reporting has been the norm since the really beginning. And in the beginning, we we would have the media get all excited and want to beat up on a particular DHB about their rate. And we still saw that recently with hand hygiene reporting. Um, but I think it makes it um, much more easy to have discussions when there is transparent reporting like this. Yes, I agree. It's, uh, Australia didn't disclose the, hosp- the individual hospital rates, but they were provided with their own rates and, yeah. and anonymified data from, from other hospitals. Um, so I guess as we draw, come to a, to a close, Ellie, mm-hmm. it's, it's fantastic information uh, um, that you've got in front of you now. So... What's what's next? What's going to happen? You know, they talk about data for action. You've got plenty yep, of data. Yep. So what's the action going to be? So we, it's been really powerful for us to look at um, the areas we need to focus on. And uh, at the same time, we've been looking at healthcare associates, staff always back to Remia and wondering why, despite good hand hygiene performance, this keeps going up. Um, and so we had gone and looked at the source for these events and, and um once again, medical devices came up there. So we're going to have a focus on healthcare associated staff or bacteremia in the context of medical devices, particularly the vascular access devices. We're going to be looking at all the bundles of care and trying to do some national programs around urinary catheters as well. And we clearly need to look at hospital acquired pneumonia, but that's a very that's quite a challenging area to look at. So I think we'll go for the low-hanging fruit in the first instance and pursue peripheral IV lines and central lines. You know, there's a, the, I say to my, my junior colleague, these devices cause harm. Why would you leave them in someone longer than you need to? And we have to get that message across that every ward round or every nursing round is does this need to stay there or not? Okay, it doesn't, out it comes. You know, we have, um, and you, you would have seen it, the case studies at the very beginning, you know, a young 20-year-old woman who died as a consequence of a staph aureus peripheral IV line-related bacteremia, and we have to stop these events from occurring. So, um, so you know, that's, is there a strategy? Have you plotted out a strategy, a three-year strategy or four-year strategy as to what, what to implement? We're just starting that now, so we're just trying to scope out what it would look like, and um, we go. We have to put proposals to the commission board to get funding, and we'll go from there. And we, we try to do these things as national quality improvement initiatives, and all the DHBs participate, and we invite su- private surgical hospitals to participate as well. Um, so that's what we'll be doing. I think it takes a while to bring about change, and, and they're not short-term goals. So you really need to understand in the beginning what your target is, get all your measurements sorted out, and then bring the people along um, with you and keep them engaged in the process. It's not, here's a package, we'll walk away, you deliver it. It's um, about being involved the whole way through. And that's really what the Commission has learned from its Hand Hygiene New Zealand programme and the Surgical Site Infection Improvement um, programme. Sounds very uh, Didier Pate like uh, Sally. Yeah. 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 I think you have to. You have to. 
continually reinforce the messaging, don't you? The health workforce changes so quickly and you get one um, opinion leader whose opinion is not the one that you want promoted and um, you're back to square one again. And so you have to be continually reinforcing the message, uh, working out who the champions are, working out who your allies are and then working with them. Um, I, health, Working in health and improvement and health is a challenge. Yeah, yeah, a lot of effort, or probably not enough effort, in the marketing and the messaging. And um, so, perhaps just one final question: What's when do you plan to, to repeat the the point prevalence survey? Is there a plan to to repeat what you've just done in some few years ahead? Yeah, I think so. I think we'll just follow and do it five yearly intervals. You know, we can't leave it another um, twenty five years. That's what had happened in the past. And we there's some learnings, and you know, we'll be working with your your team to try and um, t- take some of those things. How we can be more efficient with doing the um, data capture, and particularly as more DHBs come on board with fully um, electronic medical records, that will make life much easier. We could do it remotely then. We wouldn't have to travel to um, all around the countryside. But mm. I think the one thing I learned was that having a small team worked exceptionally well and um, really gave us confidence in the quality of our data rather than sending it out to the district health boards to just do themselves. Sure, sure. Um, and just I just thought of one more question. Private sector, there was any any... There was no private hospitals in this cohort? No, we, we, we have about just over 30, I think, predominantly private surgical hospitals in New Zealand. And um, we did a pilot, we piloted it in a few to see how it worked, but the numbers of patients were very low. And we just felt that it wasn't going to be a good use of resource. But there's nothing to say in the next five years, the larger ones, particularly the larger um, hospitals and the big centres, you know, could be involved in doing it as well. Because what happens is if you get an infection from private surgery, you come into the district health boards for um, management of it. Yes, yes, yes. Well, we're, we're, that was one of the gaps we've got yeah. in Australia is that we don't have data from the private sector. Yeah. So we're yeah. also exploring options there too. Well, it's been great to chat, Sally. Once again, I think, you know, on more than one occasion, New Zealand tends to lead the way um, in the in the South Pacific uh, the Southern Hemisphere. So congratulations to you and your team on, on undertaking such a great study. And uh, we look forward to uh, uh, observing your interventions in the future. Thank you, Phil. But I, I do want to say that we often are very generously supported by our Australian colleagues <laughs> and build on from that. So hopefully that we can share some of our innovation back with you again. Sure. And, and maybe we'll all line up and do the next one together. That would be good. Yeah. Okay, Sal, thanks very much for that. And uh, uh, thank you, listeners, for listening in. And uh, join us next time for the next episode of Infection Control Matters. <laughs>